Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally, voidware prohibited, must be 18 or older to enter, no purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Support for this episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting, home of the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, Flight School. MIPS Flight School helps clinicians earn their highest possible MIPS score in a group coaching setting and at an affordable price. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Today, we're talking with Lauren Deutsch, CEO and Director of Lauren Academic Services. She tells us how her background and experience in clinical social work led her to realize the huge gaps and disparities that occur in medical education for physicians. Join us as she helps us understand the challenges and how her organization is trying to help. Let's dive in. So the, the main thrust of what we do is that we provide academic or educational services within medical education, health science education. And so a big part of our work is a collaboration with GME and UME, so graduate medical education and undergrad medical ed, as well as physician assistant programs, nursing programs, etc. And if we look at it in sort of the most direct way, it's thinking about ways in which people have either gotten stuck in their learning for a variety of reasons and helping them get unstuck, or it's around curriculum design and um, training for faculty and so forth in terms of you know, the courses that are taught and meeting LCME requirements, et cetera. So, um, so a big part of our work is both with faculty as well as students, residents, fellows. So can you give us an example for our listeners, maybe of an example or maybe a large segment of the folks that you deal with that are kind of quote unquote stuck, as you put it, in their education and how, how you work with them? What do those services look like? And maybe a couple of specific examples. Basically, this there are sort of three broad reasons why people might come to us or find us or Google us in terms of um, you know where somebody has maybe gotten derailed or off track in their learning. And those three broad categories are: I have a big test, high stakes exam coming up, and I need to prepare. 
I have been a sort of chronic low flyer in medical school or residency where I'm just below the mean, maybe negative Z-score by one or two points. And um, I want to make sure in this next high stakes exam that I not only pass and achieve, et cetera, but that I learn adaptively how to do that ongoing. Or three, which is sort of a bigger category of maybe presenting concerns, might include somebody with a diagnosed learning disability, mental health syndrome or condition, um, somebody with neurological disorder, or even subclinically, somebody who comes in who just says, you know, I have some symptoms of inattention, I don't have a diagnosis of ADHD, et cetera, but I know that I get really distracted and I have a difficult time learning. So those would be like those three broad categories, but a lot of it's predicated on they have a big test coming up, whether they're remediating that or preparing for that as a first attempt. What's the format? Do you do it like one-on-one type training or do you do large classes? We do both. The majority of our sort of bread and butter or, you know, our like services that we provide day to day, day in, day out, are one-on-one services. Um, We do consulting with deans or program directors, and I'd say that represents sort of the next big category for us. And then the, the sort of third one would be these workshops where it might be an entire department, like the Department of Anesthesiology or Department of Internal Medicine, um, where we come in and we do a series or we do a one-off workshop in preparation for a board exam or where we do something in a medical school where, you know, the, high, the entire second year medical school class is there and we're preparing for, let's say, step one, which is a first big board exam that they'll take in medical school. So it, it really is across multiple domains in that regard. Um, but one-on-one, and we have a very specific process and workflow for that that I'm happy to talk about. So you were in clinical practice yourself as a social worker mm-hmm. for a long time. You've got to see all these different parts and pieces of the healthcare industry in play. Why is it specifically you're interested in helping students and residents who have gotten stuck in this way? Yeah, I, you know, early on um, in my career, I was working at the University of Chicago in the student mental health clinic, and I started a program there called ASAP, which is, you know, like ASAP, Um, but it was stood for, as an acronym, stood for the Academic Skills Assessment Program. Um, And at the time, as a psychiatric social worker doing intake work and, you know, starting to meet with students, both undergrad and graduate, I was seeing kind of a preponderance of medical students coming in and, and residents. And so I asked a question about that, like in a sort of research way, well, what what is that about? I always thought, you know, medical students wouldn't come in and ask for academic support. That seems odd. They got into medical school. They're smart. Why would they need help? And it it was a really naive kind of belief that I had, which I think many of us often do perceive in medical, you know, or in healthcare that doctors are smart and therefore they never have difficulty. And the two have nothing to do with each other, of course. But at the time, and you know, my infinite wisdom as a young 20-year-old something, I said, you know, there must be something to this. And so um, I guess as I started to look at kind of what it was that brought people in, in the medical field, um, I started to see these three broad categories emerge that I just indicated. And what I saw was that um, like mere mortals, you know, medical students, residents, et cetera, they have just as much 
you know, likelihood of academic difficulty as anybody in the general population. And so I asked a research question about that. And that became my um, full-time position after graduate school is providing this type of academic support in a very specialized way, which meant kind of becoming almost like a medical student for a big part of my postgraduate work um, and spending time really understanding the narrative of a medical student or resident, both in terms of the specialty, in terms of the basic and clinical sciences, and of course, all the organ systems and so forth, and where people might get stuck in that process and why. And I, I'm fascinated by that question, um, in part because I think we place so much uh, respect and reverence at times on doctors, and we say they really can solve, you know, these in, intense problems, or they're able to kind of grapple with, you know, questions that are hard to answer. But I looked at the people I was working with and providing support for, and I saw these are regular people who are really contending with very much the same kinds of issues that, that anybody who might make access, make use of a student mental health clinic, you know, would. And um, I think, I, again, as naive as it sounds now when I say it out loud at the time, it seemed like a really important question. And I think it was a way of, of maybe you know, early on getting into the space where I started to look at issues around burnout, issues around mental health, issues around what is it that really does interfere with the process of learning from a memory retention perspective all the way through to retrieval practice and so forth. So have you been able to identify any trends in where people are getting stuck and how you address that? So, you know, I think I mentioned these three broad categories of why people present in the first place, you know, needing academic support or an integrative academic support approach. And, and so one of the places we see this is, let's just start at a basic level. Think about the last time you took a big high stakes exam, you know, maybe before college or before graduate school or, you know, SAT, ACT, an AP exam, right? Any type of standardized test embedded in that are these two really broad variables. It's the content, what you know about what you're being tested on, and it's the process, which is what you know about the test that you're taking. And so those two broad variables, I think, just at a basic level, are not always taught or elucidated in education, and in medical education in particular, where there are a preponderance of exams that students and residents have to take and will have to take for maintenance of certification and so forth. So I think one of the variables that is out there is that we have this very high stakes test-taking experience or set of experiences um, that sometimes don't feel like they relate closely to the clinical skills management that, you know, physicians need to learn or maintain or enhance. And so, you know, when I stop to think about, like, just at a very basic level in medical education, what could be a shift? What could we do to maybe help provide some kind of a, you know, either a support or a pathway through some of the difficulties we were seeing. One of them was just simply educating people about learning and, and about memory and retention and you know, how we think about encoding information. And so a lot of research in that area, and I became really interested in a lot of the work that was going on around, around that, around memory and retention and learning curves, memory curves, you know, how long is a memory curve? How do we measure that? How do we look at um, information, both in terms of a working memory capacity and how quickly it can peel off and fade away and be replaced by, you know, 
900 million other kinds of pieces of information. And so that piece became a big hallmark of our work, which was to take a research based approach and then an evidence-based approach and really use data and empirical information to drive a lot of what we did because the emotions in learning become so um, complex so quickly and become such barriers at times that if we rely simply on how we feel to measure progress or to you know help people learn we would probably be doing this forever in a day and spinning our wheels. Obviously, there's one of you. There's you have a small team. I'm sure you have a great many resources. How do you reach more students? How do you how do you scale some of your solution? Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is a the big question that we contend with. You know, and there have been from a business perspective, there's all the different training that goes on. So I sat down 25 years ago and I started to think about like what it takes to learn how to learn or to learn how to achieve. And I said, well, like what are the essential ingredients? And you know, over the years, I I think I got a little more polished and nuanced and aware of sort of what those ingredients are. And so from a workflow or process perspective, when I incorporate and started a company, I thought, well, I did so because I think these are teachable skills. I don't think this is elusive. I think a lot of people know what those ingredients are. And if we could just say, okay, those are the ingredients that we agree on, how do we train people, right? And so that became an aspect of both onboarding at LAS and training our instructors, our medical coaches. And from a scalable perspective, the ways in which we do that, I think, by and large, are the consult is the consulting work that we do in medical schools or in medical centers. Where really what we're doing is training faculty to to teach or to design curriculum in a way that embeds a lot of these principles and essential ingredients in them in their work. I have a question about physician burnout, which is it sounds like you have gained a, a bit of insight into it, and can you speak to like what are some of the main contributors to them feeling burnt out? And have you been able to find ways to kind of tackle that or, or try to hopefully prevent it altogether? Sure. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I, last year I um, did a poster word session of, called Cool Ideas at USC in their innovations and in, in medical education conference. And my topic was on burnout. It was using design thinking to solve a big problem. And in this case, it was like, how do we solve for burnout? And part of it is looking back at the research and saying, well, what are the identifying factors or what is it that we know about burnout? And where initially I got was that, you know, is burnout a euphemism for something else? You know, is, is burnout depression? Is it anxiety? Is it, is it just sort of a, I'm not sure if I really like what I'm doing anymore. Is it, you know, so I think the, the first piece of it is, is defining it. And so in the design thinking, you know, activities that we have, you know, one of the first places you go is you work to collaborate and come up with actually the, a shared definition. Well, empathy first and a shared definition second. So I don't say those two things lightly. But um, so to answer your question, you know, Joy, I think that I think first and foremost, it's what is burnout? What are we talking about when we say that? And, you know, for me, I think it probably covers a, a wider category or set of categories than, than simply just um, saying a word like burnout and assuming that we all know you know what it is. So when I talk about that, what I usually speak to is at a professional and per personal level, so in a more pervasive sense, it impacts most aspects of your day, your night, your life. It's not something that's just in one particular 
particular area, but it's something that has taken hold and affects you in a more global sense. Um, I think the other part of it is sort of the duration of symptoms or the duration of that feeling that you get, which is, you know, if something lasts one or two days, I'd be maybe loath to call that burnout, but if it's lasting two weeks, two months, and there's a persistence about that, um, where most of the things that you'd normally do to address those feelings or symptoms don't really work, then I would say, okay, so burnout has to have some probably durability. It has to sort of be there and, you know, in terms of frequency and duration over time. And then I think the other part of it is just, you asked the contributing factors. So in medicine and medical ed, what we see within graduate medical ed is not entirely the same as it is in UME or undergraduate medical ed relative to how it manifests. But with our residents, what we find is, you know, along the sort of what we'd say our chief complaints or big concerns are things like they're really, really intensely long work hours. And then there's very little time to kind of pause in any type of structured way and say, okay, what do I need to do to take care of myself right now? And I only really have about 10 hours to do it because I'm going to be back in the hospital, you know, 10 hours from now. So a portion of that time is going to be allocated to sleep and laundry and grocery shopping and basic needs. It doesn't leave a lot of time for just chilling and downtime. So I think one of the biggest contributing factors, frankly, is simply that. It's just where work and, you know, the demands of time meet. I think if you add on to that anything else, you start adding on personal life and the competing demands for time as a just human being and what goes on at a certain time developmentally in people's lives. Like, you know, are they partnered or not? The only thing I'm thinking about residency and it, the requirements to be part of it, and especially the hours and everything, it seems like it requires people to be superhuman. And that part, I don't understand why it's built into the system because it seems like nobody would be. Well, and I think, I think that, it. I think the other part of it is, as you know, from a technology perspective, I mean, here, I think in healthcare, we see this interse intersection between what we have to do, you know, let's say in Epic to get all of the patient information in and the history and physical and presenting concerns and get everything typed in. Most physicians, most residents spend, you know, 30 minutes of their time doing that per patient, right? or more, and maybe only 15 minutes with a patient, which if you ask most residents, what, you know, was it that you influenced you or, you know, made you decide to go into medicine, they don't usually say that they wanted to spend time behind a computer screen. So I think that's, you know, if you then, to what you're saying, if you then add on there are these extraordinarily long hours and there are these demands, you know, internally built into kind of what it means to be a healthcare provider relative to screen time, um, it's pretty compelling in terms of burnout. I think there's a real dissatisfaction because it's not really what they signed up for. It's not why they chose to be a doctor. I've also been curious about how introducing technology into their training and sort of like helping empower them to get used to the technology that they're going to be using in the field could empower them later on. Are you starting to see some of the curriculum incorporate more just technological training? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that part alone is actually, I would say, even arguably less problematic. I think in some ways it's really exciting. You've got 
some really neat opportunities from a learning perspective of, you know, a sim, a sim lab, like a simulation lab where you're simulating, you know, the OR experience. And so for a surgeon or anesthesiologist, and, you know, that can be an incredibly important aspect of your training. So, so there's that element, but from a training perspective of like teaching somebody how to use the technology that they will need as a physician or, uh, you know, healthcare pr um, practitioner, I think, yeah, I have less concern about that. I think if you look at what function or role does technology play in the learning process, if it's a way of facilitating some aspect of the learning, I don't think that alone has to take away the humanity of what you do as a clinician or physician. I do think it can, but I don't think it has to. And I don't, I, so I think that's a discussionable piece. And I think what you see in a lot of the curricula now are, you know, medical ethics kinds of questions and courses that are required and, you know, medical humanities classes where a lot of that can get discussed because there's time, at least a little time to, you know, sit down and, and think through, I mean, I guess the short answer, Joy, is I don't know that I think that in of itself, that it's the technology and the teaching of technology that is necessarily problematic. I, I do think that combined with some of these other constructs makes it harder. Do you notice any difference, Lauren, in the, I don't know, I guess demographics or, you know, whether that's the, the gender or the background or particular segments of the population within medical school or even the administrators themselves? Do, you know, is it, are women more likely to find you and need this kind of support and or ask for it? Is it men? Is it mostly equitable? What is your take on yeah, that experience have, in that regard? Yes, I have a lot of feelings about this one. Um, so in terms of gender, you know, it was interesting. We changed our, our application for services a couple of years ago. So there was a non-binary component to it um, just for all kinds of reasons. Um, but one of the things we were starting to think about is sort of who is it that makes use of our, you know, our services. So, so we do, we've always collected data on that in terms of um, the original set of data, which was male, female, it was largely 50, 50. That wasn't really the area where we were seeing a significant difference. And now in terms of how we've changed our applications and how people are self-identifying, it'd be interesting I'll have to look at the end of this year. We're just sort of pulling everything through. So it'll be probably another month or two before we have some definitive numbers. But I think we'll start to see that people are, you know, when they apply for services are self-identifying as, you know, all different, in all different categories in terms of male or female or non-binary or, you know, options that, you know, even a couple of years ago, we weren't being as sensitive to, we were realizing that that was something we weren't we weren't properly thinking through. Um, but, in, but I think there's another sort of distinction. I mentioned at the beginning, a, a big part of our work is in minority medical education. And in terms of who makes use of our resources or our services, when we work with a medical school, as an example, um, where the office, let's say the dean of students or um, a dean of diversity and inclusion, et cetera, where costs are being covered by them for their students, what I, what I see, and I think the part that I, I question is a much higher number of students who are referred our way who are 
students who are from minority or underrepresented by backgrounds. And, and it, it's fascinating in a sense because as we see medical schools trying to increase numbers or student body, you know, a lot of times what I think they contend with is they, they look at, I want to increase, you know, we want to increase the number of students in a given class. And in doing so, what is, will that change any of the criteria from an admissions perspective? And now we know there's all different types of, you know, constructs out there for admissions. And so it gets into a question of like, who are the students that get referred? Um, are there biases, inherent biases or implicit biases that are part of, you know, the referral process or part of the curriculum itself in terms of students who are going to have greater or lesser difficulties academically. Um, first generation college bound student versus a student whose parents are physicians, you know. Will there be a difference in terms of achievement, in terms of learning, in terms of, you know, what kinds of experiences they might contend with? You know, how much will there be imposter syndrome or not? And how much of a role would that play in their lives? And so what we find in the data on our end is that a lot of times the students with whom we provide support are coming to us from um, minority backgrounds, underrepresented backgrounds, backgrounds where their parents did not go through higher education, where they are first-generation college, you know, degree students or um, certainly first-generation physicians. Um, and so I would say the majority of our, our students, both UME and GME, fall into, from a category perspective, that category. That's really interesting. I'd love to be able to know if down the road or anytime soon anyone's able to take that information or your insights and see how it might allow them to tweak their curriculum or approach, be it in the admissions process, the referral process, or the curriculum itself um, to see what impact that may have. And even if it has downstream impact to Joy's preceding question about burnout and stress and these sorts of things and or what exactly burnout is at that time. But um, that's really fascinating to hear. Yeah, I think it, I think Robin, even it has a greater implication. I, I just, I'm waiting to hear back from a proposal I just submitted about this, about um, resident success. But I think what you find is that in residency, if there is underrepresentation in residency, that has implications for access to healthcare later. Um, and so there's a lot of research in that area, you know, whether, a doctor goes on to be in an urban or rural environment, et cetera. If there isn't representation, the access to that healthcare diminishes. And that's across multiple domains. That's when you account for race, ethnicity, religion, et cetera. It, you see a decrease across domains there. And so I, there's a few articles I'm happy to send you, but that really discuss this in great detail. And so to me, representation actually has to be across multiple domains, you know, everything from gender through race and ethnicity and so forth. It, it has to be there because if we don't, we're going to actually not, not just impact you know, retention and recruitment of faculty and students, but on the other end of the you know, spectrum in terms of the provision of healthcare. And I think that has implications for you know, our planet, quite literally. It, I, it is a big issue. It's a very broad issue, but it, specifically to answer your questions, I do think it's not about tweaking a curriculum as much as I think it's about being able to have sometimes conversations that can be really challenging and uncomfortable and being able to bring them up 
both as a faculty, as a student body, and then across different different aspects of an academic environment. Because it's just, if it isn't discussed, I don't think you're going to even make an inroad in a curricular way or in an assessment or in a protocol for admissions. I think you'd be really hard-pressed to do so. So I don't know if that, you know, I'm not sure if I said it in the most eloquent way, but I do think that uh, I think there's a whole lot of implications relative to representation. Um, and I could think of lots of stories around that and experiences, you know, that we encounter that I've had certainly just working on campus and day in and day out. And there's just, there's a lot that goes on. With that, with that. I think it's actually quite progressive of you guys to have changed even the, the gender options in your applications a couple of years ago. Like mm-hmm. I can only think of, I can't think of more than a handful of places that I've even seen that. So you mm. must be already gathering more data than, you know, the general public. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I had attended a conference actually um, the medicine X conference at Stanford. And this was one of the presentations. It was actually one of my medical coaches was presenting um, a different one than, than she and I were doing together. And it was all about sort of inclusion and diversity and thinking about at a fundamental level, just access, right? When you go into a hospital, what kinds of questions do you fill out in an application? And you know, something as specific as that, like gender, where there would be only two categories for a patient is deeply upsetting if you don't identify with one of those two categories. And it's so resonated, you know, in the room, in the discussion and with me, you know, just personally, as I was thinking, the one thing we really want to do is we want to make sure that the people you know, for whom we're providing support, feel supported. And if at the very outset of support, they already feel excluded, we've done a pretty crappy job. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. I totally agree with you. And something that's come to light for me in recent years has really been, well, when, when somebody asks you, what, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? And <laughs> some folks, you know, many people would say, oh, I'd like to be invisible because then I could go anywhere, whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, I could hop on a plane and no one would even know, you know, mm-hmm. I could travel the world. But this conversation in this gender conversation, like the topic there is like, it feels like potentially the worst place to be. It's the worst superpower because you don't get visibility. You don't get access. You get completely ignored and kind of shut out of a lot of society. And kind of to create the intersection with racism when we talk about, you know, the structure of our society. How how do we how and where do we see structured racism or structured any kind of um, bias? But this is built in on the gender side. It's a hundred percent structured. We Absolutely. See it everywhere. Yeah. Well, and I think from an education perspective, you know, in the classroom, the research has been very clear over the years, starting in, you know, the research for K through 12, which is, you know, teachers typically call on boys more frequently than on girls. I mean, so like, you know, it's not that they're saying teachers frequently call on non-binary students more frequently than girls. Like, is it even in that at that level, just even the way that we label the research and the, you know, the data and the, the markers of that data. I mean, it's even the language that we use is already antiquated in, you know, so many ways and really does a disservice to the idea of, you know, of, of educating all students. 
And that's a really difficult conversation. I think there's a lot of people out there, unfortunately, that don't even believe that that's, that, that the conversation is real or valid. And that must be a difficult thing to come up against as well, because there is data and there is research that shows like these people aren't making this up. I think sometimes the conversations as difficult as people may perceive conversations will be on on any subject. I I think there's a a far greater risk in not having the conversations. And I think we run a far greater risk of alienating people across whatever you know it is there's trying to be a sense of inclusion or education or you know support etc i mean in that realm in healthcare in general like you can't provide healthcare in a general sense if it's already separated and segregated and it doesn't it's not, it doesn't work so yeah, I think on the educational front we'd be so remiss if we perpetuated or started it there that that's realistic so I understand you're working on an app can you tell us uh, what that's for what you're doing and what the goal is okay yes totally so uh, what I'll say is this it's so it's designed as I said for organizing you know function tracking progress on the med ed side what we do is for everybody who comes in we do an intake intake is the way to get to know everyone and collect all the data and information and kind of presenting concerns and then co-construct a plan we take all that information and apart from writing up a report and a proposed education plan I also put the the numbers anything numerical into the this project planner tracker etc so we always have a pretest as a starting point to a test we do an error analysis and we really begin to prioritize topics and that information all goes in there so we look at percentages of accuracy we look at a trajectory of time we look at in education we use backward planning and so we always say where do we want to end up by the end of this experience, whether that's one month or two months or six months, etc. And what will be our benchmarks or our markers of, you know, achievement? What will we use to measure that? And I always say to my staff, we have to have measurable outcomes in medicine and certainly in general education. um, Everything is done in a measurable way. And so we have to look at this concretely and measure how progress gets how we know if we've done what we're doing, how we know it works. So the app itself, if you can sort of think about a handheld experience where you're in, at the moment, a shared spreadsheet, and each sort of tab on that shared spreadsheet represents some of the data points that we want to collect. So daily, weekly goals for, let's say, reading or video watching, et cetera, with empirical outcomes like an achievement score that's targeted to a post-test after reading a chapter or a post-test after watching a series of videos on a particular organ system. And over time, that information gets folded to the larger set of you know, achievement goals that we have. And we do things like daily tracking, we do sprints, and we do kind of ongoing midpoint assessments and endpoint assessments and all the rest, so. Great, no, and the, the backwards planning is something that now as a parent of a kid that's you know, taking our ACT on Saturday, yeah, I, I completely get that, right? What is the outcome and how do we get organized? And I love the fact that it ties into a, a place to really visualize that improvement and see what's going on or to see those measurable goals being realized by the, the work that's being put in. Yeah, I mean, if you're doing, if you're taking the ACT and you've taken a pretest of the ACT, whether it's a half length or full length exam, 
you're going to get going back to sort of what's embedded in a standardized test. It's the content. What are you, what do you know about the English, you know, that you're being tested on or the math that you're being tested on? It's also the process, right? How is the English section on the ACT? How is that designed? And in terms of like the, the types of questions and item responses that you're looking for, there's a finite number of questions the types of questions you'll be asked in any given section. So ACT and SAT in a way, um, there's a very finite amount of information that you're gonna simply be assessed on. The same would be true of the board exams in medicine, but the difference there is that the each section of the test are comprehensive. And so it isn't like one section is cardiovascular system and one section is for you know renal or GI or what have you. So the challenge that, that students or residents can kind of contend with sometimes is just that the unexpected variable or the unexpected type of question that comes up. It's not that, you know, that there's any more of an infinite number, let's say, of questions that will be asked. It's that it, there's a randomness and a variability to it um, that they may not yet have accounted for. And then there's a certain amount of inferential or abstract reasoning that goes into solving a problem, which they, again, they've memorized and haven't learned kind of in a deeper way how to apply what they've learned. It has the implications both at a test level and a clinical skills level. And so like the ACT though, it's, it's totally learnable. And I think that's the part in education that like, to me, that's the cool part. It's like, you can totally learn how to do this. You can be an expert in, you know, pathophysiology and that's great. But if you don't know how to take the test, that's going to test your pathophysiology knowledge. You're going to have a really hard time and you're not going to be able to communicate or demonstrate all that you know, just like on the ACT. It's not the science section, meaning like I need to know everything about science. It's I need to have the reasoning skills to take some of that concrete information that's presented representationally or verbally and do something with it to answer a question. If I don't know how to do that, I have a problem. So my goal is to just demystify it. It's like, these are knowable things. Let's just teach how to do that. Okay. I think we need to transition to our next question. We ask mm -hmm. this of every single guest. Mm -hmm. And basically, we want to know if you have presented a wish, any wish, uh, regardless <laughs> of, you know, constraints in any capacity, time, resources, money, et cetera, um, or technology, you know, if you could solve any problem in healthcare or health IT with a snap of your fingers, what would it be and why would you choose that? Yeah, I think, I mean, I almost would like rush in and say this. I, I think I would want to see the humanity and the compassion that, you know, is sort of inherent in working in healthcare. I would love to see that enhanced. So I think whether that is through education, whether that is through the provision of, of healthcare services, I, it requires, I think, a lot of different changes potentially. But if I had, if it's my wish in healthcare, that's the thing I would wish for. I think it's a way of mitigating burnout. I think it's a way of making sure access to healthcare exists for all. I think it's a way of making sure that, you know, that the, the reason people go into healthcare um, is something that they can really do justice to. I think, I think making sure that we are able to maintain the level of compassion and, you know, humanity in, uh, in healthcare. I think it's, it's essential. That's I think that is a great wish. And I think it would have amazing impact in a positive way to help mitigate physician burnout. So yeah. I like that. 
Thanks. Um, So we work in an industry that changes every day, if not every hour sometimes. And a lot of people want to know, how do you keep up with your piece of the puzzle or healthcare in general? What are you reading? What are you listening to um, that you are particularly passionate about? Or maybe even personal reads, if that's all you do. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, first of all, I, I write every day. Um, and part of when I write, you know, is part of a way for me to kind of think through or process thoughts that I have within, let's say, medical education. I listen to podcasts. So like Hit Like a Girl, I listen to, or Medical Teacher, I listen to, or sometimes really, really like funny podcasts that may seem totally irreverent and unrelated, but I think that may really be germane to sort of people or, you know, humanity, et cetera. So I, I do that like on a very regular basis. And I, I go to conferences on a very regular basis, um, submit proposals, present. And I read in medicine in particular, I say this to people, I'm either like the greatest flunky in medical education or maybe like really proficient, whichever way you want to look at it. Because for 25 years, I've gone to medical school and I read all the books every year. And I like really do read them. Um, and I have favorites and I write about those. And I say like, this resource does this and this is why it's cool and this is why it can work and this is how it can work and I write strategies around it so I think I can be very specific and give you titles if you want me to like medical teacher is a journal I I get that and I read it and it's right here sitting here if you want to like actually look at it there it is (laughs) Um, and actually they have a podcast it's awesome and I listen to that podcast so it's people who submit to the journal they get interviewed like for 15 minutes and they talk about, you know, their piece of what they've submitted and what's, what's going to show up in the journal from one month to next. So I love that. I get, um, I read JAMA. So the, you know, um, constantly New England Journal of Medicine, I read. Um, and then I have my certain personal favorites for the specialties. And so anesthesiology would probably be a big focus for me. And I, I, mean, I could go on and on. I can give you, you know, more names, but New York Times. Well, I think you just touched on something really important. You just kind of acknowledge that anesthesia is a favorite specialty. Do you have a handful of medical specialties or taxonomy segments? Uh, that you prefer or feel like you either specialize in or you just really geek out on? I mean, I would say for sure I geek out on anesthesiology. And part of it was because it was a way of years ago, I saw something that was about to happen with this milestone project that went on in the GME level. And I said, I feel like they're going to need some help because they've all of a sudden gone from doing a two-part test to doing a three-part staged exam for board certification. And I'm like, you don't do that seamlessly. There's always going to be little like wrinkles and things. And so I, I geeked out because I was like, this is so cool. Like, what is it going to mean for how to support the residents or how to teach them how to just prepare for this? And what I always joke about is that in anesthesiology, there was a program director at I'll leave the hospital nameless for right now, whom I just was crazy about really nice guy. And, you know, he, he and I used to talk a lot about the residents that he would refer my way. And I would say, you know, telling a resident to study harder. I'm like, how effective is that? Is that really working? Cause he'd say, I just tell them to study harder. Lauren, they just need to study harder. I'm like, 
what does that mean? I don't even know what that means. What does harder mean? And so he said, no, it doesn't work. That's why I'm sending them to you. And I said, okay. So like there was this real endearing relationship that just started, you know, people who might never see, I get to talk to on the phone or whatever. And I always say like, I don't know half the people that I provide support for, you know, within a department because we're not necessarily right around the corner or across the country sometimes or in a different country. And so like, that's kind of cool. But um, I think for anesthesiology, I think there was a really neat way of solving for this big change that was going to happen. And the program directors with whom I was working were really receptive to like, well, what's it going to take to make sure people are acclimated to this test? And these, you know, they went from a part one and a part two to a basic advanced applied exam structure and it had huge implications for whether or not residents would move from one year postgraduate to another and it had implications you know for percentiles and and so forth and that is something that people care deeply about obviously and departments need to be mindful of so anesthesiology for sure i have a lot of other favorites and i could go way into them i mean internal medicine definitely because i also feel the most basic level it is the foundation for all the medicine that students residents etc learn from um, and so it's a bias of mine when my m3s are getting ready for their internal medicine clerkship or when they're getting ready for you know step one or step two you know just to be able to think in terms of internal medicine and I could go into like why I think anatomy is the coolest class if you want to know about that too no and I I would agree with you that I think anatomy is the coolest the um so we do have to wrap up Joy do you want to ask the last question sure where can people find you if folks want to use your services or just connect with you or work with you or just you know give you a shout out um where's the best place to get in touch Okay, well, so they can obviously call us, and our phone number is 847-446-5822. They can look on our website, which is www.laurenacademic.com, and that's L-O-R-E-N-A-C-A-D-E-M-I-C.com. And then we have a Twitter handle, and we have you know Instagram and Facebook and all the social media stuff as well. We have started a LinkedIn group for Hit Like a Girl guests and listeners so that oh, they can cool. connect. Yes. And so if you would like to make yourself available there as well, we're sort of trying to facilitate a little bit more you know, real-time networking. Definitely. And we do have a LinkedIn presence. We have a, a page for Lauren Academic Services, as well, Inc., as well as my personal LinkedIn page, which is Lauren Deutsch. And that's L-O-R-E-N-D-E-U-T-S-C-H. Lauren, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Okay. Well, good. It's lovely to talk thank with you. Of you. Take care. Okay. You too. Thanks. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us, or this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you soon. Thank you to Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. You can find out more about them at www.chirpybirdinc.com.